This is Nemethasate Vota for NEJM Catalyst. I am speaking today with Dr. Jessica Dudley, Chief Medical Officer for the Brigham and Women's Physicians Organization and Vice President for Care Redesign at Brigham and Women's Healthcare. Dr. Dudley has deep expertise and extensive experience leading teams to improve patient outcomes while also addressing needs of providers. Today, we will be discussing the creative and innovative work Jessica is leading at the Brigham to realize three critically important objectives, addressing burnout, fostering innovation, and training physician leaders. Let's start, Jessica, with these three goals. How are they interdependent? Can we realize one without the others? Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be participating in your program. And then to answer your question, I would say they are uh, intricately interrelated. And to be precise, uh, yes, you could have one without the others. But in order to have what I think is the complete package, um, we really need to have all three of them. And I guess for me, the overarching um, umbrella under which all of the three sit is really engaging physicians in leading the changes that we need in healthcare, and that's really how they all fit together to, for me. And if we rely on our physicians to really be those closest to the patients, to understand where the opportunities are, to um, identify where we can improve outcomes and also try to help manage the challenges um, in rising costs in this country, ensuring that we are training our leaders, fostering innovation, and addressing challenges that they're facing, one of us right now really is burnout, really are critical for us to achieve these goals. And so when you talk about the engaging physicians as the as the overarching theme and, and these three uh, sub-goals, if you will, being, being tactics to realize that, what are some of the activities uh, that, that you're leading at the Brigham to, to, to support these? Sure. So a number of years ago, um, we recognized that while we have incredibly talented physicians as clinicians, researchers, and uh, professors and teachers, they were not uh, receiving as robust skill training in leadership as um, uh, really, the, the changing healthcare landscape was demanding, and it was a real opportunity for us to think about how could we better equip our physicians with the leadership skills that really were being demanded by the rapidly changing environment. So that has led us to make some pretty significant investments in identifying what skills our physicians need to develop their leadership and then how to provide them with the opportunities to develop those skills. So we have developed over the years a number of what I would call formal leadership training programs where we have docs who are interested in developing their leadership or their uh, department chairs are interested in having them develop as leaders. They will apply for and um, in some cases be accepted and others not for a leadership development program. We have developed one that we've been running now for 10 years with Harvard Business School that we call our Brigham Leadership Program. That's a general overarching leadership program. And then we have a number of um, additional programs, one for process improvement leadership, one for women's leadership, 
Uh, we even have a faculty mentoring leadership program and then some additional very targeted programs to, to develop specific skills, skills like organizational change management. So we offer these formal training programs. Many of them are longitudinal occurring over um, an extended period of time. A number of them involve a real hands-on project to advance the learning. And all of them have a component of a peer engagement effort that really ends up being of high value to them as uh, they advance in their careers. So that's a formal training, set of training programs that we've made investments in and offered. In addition to those, we have what we call our frontline innovation program. And this was really in response to recognizing that we had many physicians who had uh, really brilliant ideas where we could redesign or innovate the clinical care we were delivering, but they were not able to either frame them in a way that our administrators could embrace or um, access to then determine whether or not they were worthy of making uh, a real investment. So we've put a framework and a structure in place that we can solicit ideas from our physicians um, where they really are on the front lines identifying where the opportunities are to make care better and improve efficiency, and then put them in a framework so that they can be managed more efficiently over time and that we can also require the reporting of a return on investment and um, measure their impact and then determine whether or not to sustain them over time. And we call that program BCRISP, which is our Brigham Care Redesign Innovator Startup Program. And we've been running that now for over five years. So those are two different programs that we've put in place to put a framework around developing our physicians as leaders and enabling them to help uh, our institutional and physicians organization leadership better identify those opportunities that really could be ultimately integrated into operations and we can leverage uh, the expertise of our docs to better transform how we're delivering care overall. Jessica, the, the BCRIS program sounds fantastic and makes conceptual sense. Can you share an example of uh, one of the earlier projects that where the doc uh, went through this process and then ultimately there was an idea that was demonstrated enough of an ROI that then was integrated into, into operations? Sure. We had a couple of our intensivists in our um, medical intensive care unit, recognizing that there were a cohort of chronically critically ill patients that would get uh, cared for very actively in our intensive care unit and then ultimately would be discharged to a longer acute care facility, never actually being discharged to home. And then that same cohort of patients were getting readmitted at, a, at quite a high rate. And um, they took a step back to try to think about what could they do to better support the care for these patients. And ultimately, that was a BCRIS that was submitted, which was um, really addressing the needs of this chronically critically ill cohort of patients. And their solution was to engage a much more robust team around the support of these patients. That included a social worker, that included palliative care and goals of care uh, discussions and resources, and then a much tighter um, 
relationship, much of which was virtual using technology, with the long-term acute care facility so that when patients were discharged, the receiving facility would know that there was a backup available at, at our hospital um, so that if the patient started having challenges or was um, not doing as well as anticipated, they could easily reach out to a team here that knew the patient on a 24-7 type basis. It actually enabled that facility to be willing to accept those patients even earlier than they might have otherwise, knowing that this backup and this connectivity was there. It was certainly better uh, for the patients and their families who felt like they were being now managed in a much more cohesive way than previously. And then there was also value to um, the institution where patients uh, could be cared for at the kind of best and most appropriate site of care given the needs that they had at the time. So that's an example of um, one of these programs that really brought together resources from our institution, resources from uh, an outside institution to really package care better around a patient population that, that the system was kind of previously failing. So that's one example. We have other examples where the team recognized that there was another cohort of patients that, again, were falling through the cracks. These were patients who had an abnormality found on a chest X-ray or early on in an exam, and then they were getting lost to follow-up. And we recognized that these patients really needed um, more close minding and uh, much more rapid access to be evaluated for these findings. So our pulmonary surgeons, our thoracic surgeons, and our pulmonologists helped put together a specific program to better uh, support these patients who had an early detection of a finding to ensure that they wouldn't be lost for follow-up and that they could get um, kind of shepherded through the process in a much more efficient fashion. Taking it back up a, a level to these to these initiatives overall, some of the training leadership programs that, that you talked about, this CRIS specific uh, program, what has been the impact to to date in terms of any objective uh, or subjective uh, data that, that that you've collected? I know I can speak for myself. From a subjective standpoint, as someone who's an alum of the BLP program, uh, that it was quite uh, influential and uh, it really has, has given me a skill set and a network uh, that, that I've leveraged heavily over the years. But would be interested, and as, as I'm sure our, our listeners would, around some of the, the metrics uh, that, that you've tracked to, to demonstrate the impact. Yeah, so I wish that I had more kind of current metrics on this. When we developed the program, we knew that the goal of the program was to do two things, uh, really develop our leaders and ideally have them develop and help advance work within our own institution. But similarly, we had an objective that we would be developing leaders and um enabling them to advance, and that would mean leaving the institution and moving to a higher level position outside of the institution. So I don't have current data on that. Initially, we were successful in both of those. So we were successful in growing our leaders internally, so folks who were taking the course were then advancing locally within our institution, and then we had quite a large cohort of leaders who were 
um, evolving, moving out onto more senior roles outside of the institution. I just, I have not uh, tracked that more recently, so I don't have that data. Sounds like there is enough momentum now around these programs as evidenced by the fact of the number of applications uh, that, that you get exceeds the number of slots you have to suggest that it is definitely filling a need of, of, the, of the brilliant healthcare providers. You also mentioned burnout earlier. You know, we've talked about training physician leaders. We've talked about fostering innovation. And then the other area uh, that you mentioned uh, that fed into this overall theme of engaging physicians was was around addressing burnout. Uh, is your organization specifically addressing burnout, which we know is a very pervasive issue, or is it is it bundled into the fostering innovation piece and the and the training piece that 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 you've mentioned? You know, it is it's actually an independent effort, and it's something that um, we really came to independent of um, those other two programs that we were just talking through. So. The Brigham, um, which it's not unique to the Brigham, in fact, physician burnout has become uh, a very popular topic nationally and I think actually in some cases globally for a variety of reasons, but certainly at the national level there's been a rise even over the past few years with um, one of the larger studies showing up to 54% of physicians reporting burnout. So uh, we knew this wasn't a problem just for our own institution. It was something that has been uh, sensed nationally. I will say locally here, after transitioning to a new electronic medical record and having some other kind of more locally-based, state-based environment challenges with kind of increased pressure on our physicians and our institution as we're shifting into alternative um, types of care payment models, there certainly seem to be a rise in folks' a sense that our physicians were experiencing burnout. And that ultimately led us to complete a survey. We selected a survey that Stanford had designed, not because it just measured burnout, but because it measured both burnout and professional fulfillment, and we were very focused not just on identifying that our docs were burned out. We know that's a national problem. We were really looking for solutions, uh, ultimately, to get us to where we want to be, which is professional fulfillment. And the survey they have designed really enables us to look at both burnout as well as professional fulfillment and not just quantify it, but give us um, – a little bit of a magnifying glass as to where to focus. So we surveyed our docs earlier this year. Um, we had a really terrific response rate, and I think that was largely driven by our hospital and physician leadership uh, really making it clear that this was a priority and something that they wanted to support. So we had a 64% response rate on our survey. This is more than double what our normal survey response rate is. And... Um, we have begun really looking at the data at an institution-wide level. We know that our burnout rate is around where I think we had expected. It's lower than the national average that I, that I cited for you, although um, our tool is different than the one used in the national survey. It's validated against that survey. Um, and then our professional fulfillment rates were not as high as we would like them to be. So we have opportunities both 
in reducing burnout and in improving professional fulfillment. And I have no doubt that you all will be creative and, and aggressive uh, in, in making sure to, to address those, those concerns. When you look back at the beginning years of the leadership programs, when you look back at the beginning years of the innovation programs around Eclipse, for example, what were some of the biggest uh, barriers to implementing these programs, and and how did you overcome them? I and the reason I ask this is is, is to help uh, some organizations across the country and internationally who are interested in doing this anticipate some of the challenges as they grow their own uh, innovation uh, platforms and their own leadership platforms uh, within their organizations? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And, you know, we, we're a bigger institution, so in some, some instances we have the luxury of having a bigger platform with uh, probably initially larger amounts of resources. I do think a lot of the efforts that we're putting in place can be done, even in smaller institutions. Part of the way I would think about prioritizing it would be first being very intentional about it. So I think intentionally acknowledging that some type of formal training um, is really helpful, and that can certainly be done locally. I think tapping into resources that are available or, um, you know, we, we connect with Others, even in our local market, that have experienced with what people call adult learning uh, or executive learning. So I think leveraging the skills um, to better communicate to adult learners, so using group-based methods, case-based methods, these have all helped us to help transfer skill knowledge to our participants. So I think being intentional about designing programs where folks can access the learning in an efficient way is really important. All of our programs end up having a peer cohorting component to them. I actually think that's really helpful. And I'll say now that we've been so focused on addressing the burnout and professional fulfillment issues, the role and importance of peer groups and peer programming, I think, is even that much more important. So I would be designing a program that also focused on making sure there was a peer component to it. So I think that's important for the formal training programs. Tapping into resources, I would say uh, I don't think everybody needs to reinvent this. I think there's a couple core components that are really helpful to have in a leadership development program, and those are ones that uh, you would want to include. I think for the innovation program, um, doing something like that probably does require a little bit of resource up front, and it doesn't have to be a large amount. But if the institution or the group of docs collectively are willing to pool some resources and then create more of a competition for applying uh, and then being selected to receive those resources and being held accountable to delivering on it, I think that's also really important. We also do resource that program with some infrastructure. So um, a little bit of infrastructure, like a project manager or a data analyst, can really help uh, hold people accountable and get the work moving forward. So I think that that's been very important for our frontline innovation program. And then in the burnout area, I do think a survey is pretty critical to opening up the dialogue and raising awareness. And I think that that's the first 
step in this. We used a very robust survey. I don't think you have to. I think there's now many different survey options out there. Um, but picking a tool, um, having leadership commit to advancing it, and then getting folks to answer it, uh, and then being willing to sit down and review the data and engage in the discussion is pretty critical. So I think those would be the components that I would suggest for advancing the work, even in a much lower scale way than we've had the fortune of being able to do at our institution. Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with Catalyst today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Sure, my pleasure. Take care.